Good morning. Open your Bibles this time to John chapter 7. We're working our way through the middle of John, John 4 through John 11, as we were doing this study on the person of Jesus. And not just the person of Jesus, but how he personally satisfies and speaks to the deepest hungers of the human heart. Today we're going to look at the hunger for what I call the heavenly. So let's pray, okay? Father God, thanks for your word, thanks for Jesus, and for how he clearly um, has come to be our Lord, our Savior, how he speaks to the hungers of our heart, how he speaks truth that lays a foundation for life. So I just really pray as we study it today, as an act of worship, we want to study and, and learn of you. We want to listen to you. And mo- most of all, Father, um, help us to uh, love you more and respond to you. So we, uh, we embrace you and we ask you to do your work in us, in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. John chapter 7, there's an outline provided as always. And let me ask you a question. What if there was a new... Um, a new show coming this fall. They're always advertising the new stuff coming up, right? It's on your local uh, Times Warner. It's on your DirecTV. It's everywhere. It's a mainstream show. And, and, and the title of the show catches your attention because the title of the show is God Talk. Now, first you kind of think, oh, this is probably going to be a collection of different gurus talking about God. You know, you've got a priest, a rabbi, a pastor... You know, you got the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the loons that are on both ends of the spectrum, whatever. But you know, this is a talk about God. But then you realize, no, this is not a talk about God. This is talk by God. Because God is going online. God is going to go online once a week for one hour and talk to you. Talk to the world. Now, here's my question. What would you do? It's a fair question. Uh, If you could only record a certain number of shows on your DVR, would this one make the category where you don't just say record show, but you go record series? (laughs) You know, new and old. Record series, keep them all, and bump anything else off my DVR to make room for it. How many of you think you'd probably do that? Raise your hand. How many of you think, you know something, it's not as important as 24? Raise your hand. Okay, okay. I mean, is it God or Jack Bauer, right? I mean, you know, okay, whatever. I think most of us would probably tune in, at least for the opening premiere. Because if God really delivered a message, most of us would probably say, wow. Because I'd like to hear from someone about heavenly things who's actually been there. You see, the commonality in a lot of human prophets and human authorities and human religious gurus is they love to talk about heavenly things. They love to talk about God. They like to talk about what's going to happen after I die. They like to talk about what God thinks about this or that. They all have opinions on God, but they're kind of just that. A lot of times they're just opinions. But what if you could hear directly from God? How do you think you'd respond? How do you think our culture would respond? Uh, Good ratings, bad ratings? Or would the ratings change as people began to watch the show? 
And the reason I kind of set that scenario up is in a way, that's kind of what we're going to look at today. Because I think since the beginning of time, men and women have wondered about God. They have wondered about heavenly things. Uh, It's been in the human heart. It's a universal need. There's no doubt that from as far back as we can study the history of humanity, One of the questions that humans have been asking for as long as we can find their drawings in a cave is where did all this come from? And what is God like? And what does God think of me? And what does God think about what's right, what's wrong? And someday if I die, or when I die, and meet this God. Don't you want to know what, what that's going to come down like? See, humanity has always wondered. It's implanted in the human soul. It's implanted in the human conscience. It's reinforced by creation that whenever you look at creation, you kind of go, wait a minute, this didn't just come from nowhere. No matter what views you hold on creation and how it did or did not come into existence, man has always intuitively known there has to be something after this life. That's serious stuff. So if God was actually going to show up and speak up, I would want to tune in. Amen? Yeah. And I think most people in the culture would, at least for the first few shows. What we're going to look at today is a story in which, in a very low-tech way, God goes online. God shows up. God speaks up through the person of Jesus. And as people begin to confront what they're hearing as they tune into Jesus, I think we're going to see and learn a lot that we can apply to our own lives, our own culture, as we begin to ask honestly the questions, if this series was on today, if heaven speaks, heaven shows up, let's notice the reactions back then when Jesus began to say, you know something, I am from another planet. In fact, I'm from heaven. And I've got some words for you. And then we'll see what the reaction was back then. And I want you to imagine it's happening right now because I think that this reaction that we're going to see uh, is very similar to perhaps how our culture would react today. All right, so let's go to it. Let's go to an ancient story, true story from the life of Jesus. When God shows up, people tune in. How are the reviews, you might say? All right, here we go. Here we go. Let's look at the story first, where Jesus basically says, I, guess what, am not of this world. Let's enjoy the story. Here we go. Pick, check, pick it up, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Now, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. Remember, that's the northern region. Uh, you got Galilee, then you got Samaria below it, and then you got Judea to the south, right? So after these things, Jesus is now walking in Galilee. He's there. And he was unwilling to walk or teach in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. Now, this was one of the major fall festivals and and, uh, religious holidays in Judaism. 
So what, what's basically going on is it's a, it's, a, it's a time of joyous celebration. It's a time in which a couple of things are happening. It, it's kind of like a big tent party, okay? It, it, the people actually would build what they call tabernacles or booths uh, using palms and other types of branches. They would build, uh, basically picture a, a tent city. They kind of would build these small, simple outdoor enclosures so that they could go back and live in those for seven days. And during this time, they had special uh, celebrations and worship, and, and it was an exciting time. It was a remembrance to help them remember that it was God who took care of them when they went out of Egypt and spent all those years in the wilderness on their way to the promised land that they're living in now. So it was a reminder that God was the one who took care of us because we didn't always have these nice homes and condos by the beach, okay? But instead, we used to live on the run in tents in these temporary shelters as God took care of us, provided for us. So they had this feast of of tabernacles or feast of booths. Uh, It was a time of a lot of fun celebration. It was also timed to happen in the fall right after the major harvest, especially the grape harvest. So, man, you know, the crops have been brought in. They've they've given their offerings to God. They give God their first fruits. And they're they're now celebrating. It's kind of like fall festival time. And, And knowing that so many people are going to be there, that uh, Jesus is faced with a decision whether to go or not. Now notice the the atmosphere. It says Jesus was not going to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Remember, he had done miracles. He had healed a guy on the Sabbath and really ticked off the religious leaders. And for other reasons of this growing movement of followers of Jesus, the religious leadership and the authorities were wanting to get rid of him. And he knew that. And it says in verse 3, Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples, that is the ones up there, in other words, your followers, I don't think this is talking just about the twelve, but his broader followers, also may see your works which you are doing, these miracles that you've been doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. In other words, man, Jesus, it's time to go public. It's time to really go big, and, and the Feast of Booths is a great time to really come out fully, go up, go to Judea, go down to Judea, excuse me, go down to Judea, do a few of your miracles, show your followers who are beginning to believe in you that you're the real thing. He says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. I think that's a reference actually to his actual family. So Jesus, verse 6, says to them, my time is not yet come. My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Uh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Underline that sentence. We'll come back to that. So go up to the feast yourselves, and I, I do not want to go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. In other words, Jesus lived with an awareness that he had a mission on earth. He knew that his mission would end up at the cross. He knew that he would be crucified and give his life for our sins. But he also knew that these people are wanting to crucify him like now, and this is like ahead of time. So Jesus has a complete control of his destiny. I want you to see that. Nobody's going to do anything to Jesus that he doesn't want to have done to him until the time is right. And he knows this is not the time. So he holds back because he says, this is not the time for me to, to do that. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Now, then fast forward in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, 
Then Jesus had a, a, a different plan. He himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. You know, Jesus probably knew if I show up with my posse that I hang with all the time, I, you know, my, my group of disciples, I come into town, everyone's going to know, it's, uh, here comes Jesus and his gang. You know, but, but Jesus say, he sends them ahead, and then he says, that way I can go secretly. I can go secretly. So Jesus does that. Jesus goes up secretly, verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast. People were anticipating he'd be there, and they're looking for him. And we're saying, where is he? There was much grumbling going on in the crowd also concerning Jesus. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Stay away from him. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for the fear of the Jews. They're whispering all this stuff behind the scenes, but, but they know that the Jewish leadership is down on Jesus. So whether they're pro-Jesus or against Jesus, there's a real mix in the crowd, but they don't want to be too public about it because they don't want to be identified on either side. You know, they're trying to stay out of the controversy. But when it was now, verse 14, here the story picks up. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become so learned, having never been educated? I mean, this guy is a, is a carpenter's son, or most likely, Joseph was most likely, a, uh, it could be also be translated, a, a stonecutter's son. But Jesus was a good blue-collar guy. He didn't have any formal education. He hadn't been trained, but yet he is the smartest, most learned. How does he know all of this? So they're amazed at the wisdom and the teaching of Jesus. They're astonished, it says. So when Jesus answered them, how can you be so smart? He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, underline it. If anyone is willing to do his will, referring to God, his Father. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know that the teaching, that is, that Jesus was doing, whether it is of God or whether I just speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, likes to make himself look smart. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, perhaps focused on heaven here, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him, Jesus says concerning himself. Then he, then he confronts them. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carry out the law? Okay, we all sin, right? And everybody is, yeah, okay, we do. Then why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, what do you mean? You have a demon. They say, you, have a, you, you have a demon, Jesus, and who seeks to kill you? And Jesus answered, I did one miracle or deed, and you all marveled. Okay, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but it's from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken. In other words, Jesus is saying, okay, look, here's how messed up you are in your religious thinking. Okay, because circumcision was prescribed in the law to be done on the third day after birth, right? Or the eighth day, eighth day after birth. Excuse me, the hospitals today do it on the third day, shot of vitamin K. Anyway, uh, ask your mom to explain circumcision when you get home. Anyway, here we go. But, but, but the reality is the law said do it on the eighth day, and if it happens to fall on the Sabbath, they would still do it because they've got to obey the law. Even the law said don't work on the Sabbath. But if you remember a while back, Jesus healed a guy 
uh, on the Sabbath. And, and the religious leaders went ballistic. You know, they went angry, you know, because, oh, we gotta kill this guy. They, they went down on Jesus because Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath. So Jesus just is pointing out to them, look, you guys, you know, the law says, make sure you're circumcised on the eighth day, so if it falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it. But, you know, so, you know, the guy gets a relatively small part of his body fixed. I fix his whole body, Jesus says. He says, you get angry with me, verse 23, uh, because I made the entire man well on the Sabbath. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, you're not righteous, you're not... You know, it's kind of a humorous deal if you see the humor in circumcision. But basically, Jesus says, you can circumcise on the Sabbath, but you can't fix the whole guy. Because I healed the whole man. And you go and you get upset with me. And as a result, they wanted to kill Jesus. For that and a lot of other reasons, like claiming to be God. So some of the people in Jerusalem were saying, verse 25, Is this not the man uh, whom they are seeking to kill? Look! Uh, he is speaking publicly. He's come out. He's public. And they are saying nothing to him. In other words, the rulers, do do they really know that this is the Christ? Maybe the Messiah? Do, do, do they? Do they? In other words, uh, is that why they're leaving him alone? How, however, we know where this man is from. In other words, we know where he grew up. But whenever the Christ or Messiah may come, no one knows where he's from. Then Jesus cried out. In other words, the bottom line is the crowd is really confused. Okay, because they're impressed by Jesus, but they know that the religious leaders want to get rid of him, and, and Jesus is stumping them, and you know, you can circumcise, but you can't fix the whole body, and, and then they, they're just confused. And then Jesus, knowing they're confused, says this, you both know me and where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him, referring to God, because I am from him, and he sent me. You see, the heart of what Jesus is teaching is, you know, you're missing the point. Because while you're debating all this stuff and have different opinions about me, the reality is, I speak truth. I am true, I am righteous, because I'm not of this world. I've been sent from above, referring to God. God has sent me down to you. And the words that I'm speaking are his words, not just my words. That's what Jesus wanted to deliver. So verse 30, here's the reaction. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In other words, the religious leaders now, they send people out. Uh, they have kind of like their, uh, their temple police, and they send them, they're called officers. So they send them out to get Jesus. Go get him, man. Get him off the streets, okay? Let's arrest him. But, but for somehow, miraculously, nobody is able to lay a hand on Jesus. It's kind of cool. I like that. So the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, verse 32, about Jesus. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent the officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus says this now, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. And I can see Jesus pointing up to the heavens. That's clearly what he's referring to. I'm going to go back to him who sent me. And you will seek me, but you will not find me. And where I am going, you cannot come. You're not headed there. 
And the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we'll not be able to find him? I mean, now they're thinking he's talking about the GPS again. You know, so, so they're really confused. I mean, well, okay, man, where do you think you can go to hide from us? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the, the Greeks, is he? Or to, teach, uh, or to teach the Greeks, is he? Uh, what is this statement, you will seek me and not be able to find me? And where I am going, you cannot come. Now they're really confused. And you are too probably, right? Okay, so hang with me. It'll get clearer. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Sound familiar? Remember, this is what Jesus said to the woman at the well. He repeats that invitation. Whoever is thirsty, man, you have a thirst for heavenly things. You have a thirst for God. You have a thirst for forgiveness. You have a thirst for help in life. You have a thirst to understand eternal things. Then believe in me. Put your trust in me and you will drink from like a living fountain that never runs dry. Verse 39, a little commentary by John. But this he spoke of the Spirit of God, whom those who believed in Jesus were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified or gone back to heaven. So some of the people, therefore, were they heard these things, were saying, wow, this is certainly the great prophet. Others were saying, no, this is the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, while still others were saying, well, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? I mean, haven't the scriptures said that Christ comes from the descendants of David, from the town of Bethlehem, and obviously they hadn't seen the Christmas movie yet, right? Okay, the movie wasn't out. That was a joke. You just kind of let that go, okay? You know, obviously, ha, huh, hmm, descendants of David, town of Bethlehem. But you remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but they knew him as a Galilean. Wow. Has not the scripture said Christ will come from Bethlehem, the village where David was from? So the division occurred in the crowd because of him, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him yet. The officers then came to the chief priests and, and Pharisees to report back into the religious leaders. And they said to them, Hey, why did you not bring him? Why didn't you arrest the guy? And the officers answered, uh, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. I'm not going to interrupt him. You know, it's like, well, well, we were so amazed listening to him that we forgot to arrest him. And we were fearful of the crowd and other reasons too. So they didn't arrest him. And the Pharisees then answered, Then you have not also been led astray, have you? No, one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd does not show the law, uh, does not show the law is accursed. Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3, who had kind of secretly come to Jesus. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus before, then spoke up and said, You know, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, doesn't it? And they answered, You're not also from Galilee, are you? <laughs> search and see no prophet comes out of galilee and everyone went home see this is jesus really confusing the crowd here's what i want you to see though as i study this and i think you know why does god include this section of scripture why does he include this story what is the lesson that john's trying to drive home 
And I think the first big thing I want you to see is just, I want to just review with you briefly. You don't have to write these down. In fact, I printed it out in your outline. That when, Je- when heaven showed up and, and spoke, when Jesus, who says, I am not from here, I am sent from above, God himself, the Father, has sent me to you. I speak truth to you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm come from heaven. I'll be going back to heaven. And you need to know that I am not just of this earth. I may have been born of a virgin Mary. I may have grown up. I may have lived in Bethlehem and Galilee, but the reality is, the big idea is, I'm not of this place. And, and the reaction was, was livid and varied. Here's the reaction. Some hated him, verse 7. Others were impressed that he was the smartest guy that never went to school, verse 14. Some wanted to then kill him, verse 19. Others wondered, who could he be and, and is he demon-possessed? So some thought that he was actually uh, demon-possessed. Who could he be? Others plotted to execute him, while others placed their faith in him and said, you know something, I'm buying in. I believe in him. And he invited all to believe, and all found him impossible to ignore. Now that's just a big variety of reaction, isn't it? Now what's the significance? What do we learn from this as we think about being a Christ follower in today's world? And it was a challenge for me as I tried to study this through. It's a great story, a really cool story. Jesus, you know, really, really makes them look like idiots and, and, and really trumps them and shows his wisdom and, and they can't trap him and they're trying to trap him and, and some are believing and some are not. What do we learn from this story? Let me give you five truths that are directly mentioned by Jesus. Here they are. Number one, Jesus was not of this world, but heavenly. Therefore, trust him on heavenly issues. That's the big idea of the story, I believe. Verse 16, look at it again. Verse 16 said this, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. Jesus is saying, everything I'm teaching is directly from God. Now we know, fast forward, that Jesus was God in human flesh. He later will say, I and my Father are one. (laughs) You know, you know, and the mystery of the Trinity, that Jesus was indeed God come in human flesh. But Jesus' emphasis here is, look, I'm sent from the Heavenly Father to deliver truth to you. He sent me, that's my real home, that's where I'm from. I didn't really just grow up in Bethlehem, I predate Bethlehem by a long ways. Okay, I've been around since the creation of the universe. In fact, I am the eternal son of God. And, you know, I, I, I have come to earth from there. I'm going back there. And I am true and I am righteous and believe in me. Jesus says, so trust him. I like verse 29. He reinforces it. Look at verse 29 with me in your Bibles. Jesus says, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. That's the big starting point. You know, the world has never lacked for religious prophets who claim to have the truth about God. Our culture is full of people that have opinions about God, opinions about faith, opinions about heavenly things, all kinds of them. Jesus is different in that Jesus says, you know something, I'm not bringing opinions, I'm bringing observation because that's my home. I'm from heaven, and I want to speak about heavenly things. When I speak about God, I'm speaking about my heavenly Father. I'm speaking about the God that I have been with from eternity past. 
I am speaking as God come down to earth. Huge difference. And that's why what you believe about Jesus needs to shape how we think about everything in life. Now you may stop and some of you may be here today and you're thinking, yeah, Dale, but that's what Jesus said, but how do I know Jesus was really from God? I mean, other people have claimed that. What's different? And I would just simply point out to you, you can go online, listen to some of the sermons that we've done uh, about the credibility of Jesus and, and what, why do we have our faith in him? The miracles that he did, the manner that he lived, uh, the message that he delivered, and ultimately the resurrection, the resurrection rooted in history, the resurrection of Christ where he said, I will prove to you that I'm more than a mere man when he conquered death and rose from the dead. And then you could go on down through the, all the, uh, the history of changed lives for the last 2,000 years. But it's really rooted in, in, uh, in our confidence that Jesus really is who he said he was. That changes everything. We have got to, therefore, number two, recognize that truth is often unpopular, especially when it exposes evil. In verse 7, Jesus started this whole story by pointing out something that I don't want you to miss. He says, my time has not yet come. I know they're out to kill me. He says, the world cannot hate you. In other words, not, they're not hating you yet. He later says, by the way, the world is going to hate you when, once it figures out that you identify with me. But he says, but it hates me because I testify of it. I speak truth about it, that its deeds are evil. So when truth is spoken by Jesus and the truth begins to get a little too personal, the truth begins to expose and testify or speak truth about the culture and the world that he was in and he was confronting, um, Jesus said, that doesn't make a guy popular. In fact, I realize that there's a chunk of the world who hates me. They want to get rid of me. Now, here's what that raises for me as a follower of Jesus today. Why is it that I expect the world to like me and agree with me? If they disliked and even hated Jesus, when it, whenever his truth went, not, it went beyond just the love and grace of God, but when his truth began to confront the evil in the culture, and I'm not talking about just evil and nasty things, I'm talking about the evil as in the wrong teaching of the religious leaders and the wrong thinking of the culture, and the wrong thinking about God. And Jesus identified that as evil. When Jesus began to expose evil in the culture, all of a sudden, he wasn't very popular. So, you know, I just think if you're going to be a follower of Jesus today, we have got to go into it and give up this uh, American idealism that says that we are an American Christian country, and therefore, everyone will vote for Jesus. And for those who think like him. Instead, you've got to realize you are living in more of a first century culture in which the majority of people no longer really believe in moral absolutes or moral right and wrong and, 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 and whether or not there even is a God. And if there is a God, uh, he's probably kind of in his rocking chair kind of just kind of watching, letting things play out. And, but there's various views of God out there, but the predominant, increasingly dominant view in our culture is God either doesn't exist, or he, if he probably exists, I think the dominant view is God exists, 
but he's irrelevant. And if he's anything, he's loving. I vote for that. And probably everybody dies and goes to heaven. Um, Or you just die and go back to the dirt. You know, so that's kind of the predominant. Does that make does that ring true to what you think the culture that you're living in believes? So, I just think the the big lesson of the morning for me is to realize, you know, Jesus is not of this world, but because of that, he should be listened to when you want information and truth about heaven and God and reality and this life and who you are. Listen to Jesus. Number two, realize that as you follow Jesus, truth is not always popular, especially when it exposes evil. I did a word study this week on this word evil to see um, exactly what is included in in this term. It's actually a a Greek term using my new app, by the way. Uh, um, No, Uh, you'll hear more about that in the future. But to to do a little check on it, it appears 78 times in the New Testament it's a word for evil that it, it, it doesn't just mean, like when you think of evil, you think of Hitler. Or when you think of evil, you think of the mass killing in Santa Barbara that I only learned about when I came uh, off of my trout fishing trip last week back to West Virginia where I had no cell phone coverage for seven days. Oh my gosh, and I survived. Can you believe that? But I was saddened when I came off uh, that out of that wilderness area camping and I got my cell phone coverage and I began to hear stories and hear about the tragedy up in Santa Barbara. We need to be praying for those folks. But we may would say many, not everyone, but many would say, well, that was an evil thing. But we think of evil in terms of those type things. And I think it was evil, even as I hurt and pray for the young man that, that grew up um, in a very tough world that uh, anyway we'll come back to that but the reality is we think of mass killings as evil we think of genocides as evil you know Jesus wasn't speaking about mass killings and genocide when this word is used it's used in a variety of things it's used for sinful acts in general it's used for um, it's used for wrong teaching that leads people astray you know, it's, it's used in a, in a broad way, just things that are, it can be translated evil, wicked, bad. Uh, these are all translations of this term. So Jesus says, basically, when I confront the world and I expose what is bad in the world, just substitute that. When I expose what is bad in this world, it doesn't go down well because people love evil over good. People often in their own sinfulness, um, they like evil at times in the broader sense. So when Jesus begins to do that, he really pushes against the culture. It's interesting that as I thought about how this um, applies in in our lives, um, I was surprised by two news stories in my re-entry into the internet-based world. (laughs) The first was the tragic killings and the young man who grew up in a broken home, uh, his own manifesto speaks of the pain of his parents' divorce and how that affected him 
and other things. I uh, grew up in, a, in an environment of a culture, at least. And I don't know the details about the man's, uh, about that young man's religious background. I, I'm not, it appears that there wasn't much, if anything, there. Um, so I don't want to speak to that, but I, I can tell you that he, he grew up in a culture that teaches a worldview that is becoming very dominant. And that worldview goes something like this. Uh, God either doesn't exist or he's irrelevant. Uh, you decide what's right and wrong, and nobody else should tell you what's right or wrong. Um, follow your own heart and do whatever you want to do. Um, and most importantly, we are, we are raising a generation and a culture that believes uh, we don't even need God to have the creation that we have. And I believe that has a deep imprint on the, on the hearts and souls of people when they grow up in a culture that is even ridiculing the idea that there is a creator God that someday, because uh, it kind of follows logically, if there is a personal God who created everything, whether he did it through evolution, whether he did it in six days, whether he did it in six million years, I don't want to get into that. But the reality is the Bible begins with one big statement. In the beginning, God created. So, And the reason it does that is because the big idea of Genesis 1 uh, isn't a science statement. It is a theological truth that we need to know that as I live life, there is a God who created me and who created everything and that someday I will, when I die, there is a heavenly second time in which I'm going to be judged by that God. And see, that's when we study Jesus and we study the, what he's been teaching us through these sermons. Remember a few weeks ago when Jesus taught us in John chapter 5, that, that um, uh, the Father has handed all judgment over to me and someday uh, all people will stand before me and, and, and uh, if they believe in me, they have eternal life. If they don't believe in me, they face eternal death and, and hell and judgment. Now, Jesus taught that, okay? Here's my point. When I was growing up, whether a person was a Christian or a non-Christian, or believed in Jesus or not, virtually everyone that I went to school with did believe there was probably a God and that someday I would need to stand in front of him and give an answer for my life. There would be some form of judgment. Now, they may disagree on which religion to follow and everything else, but the concept that God is real, judgment is real, and there is a, there is a life after this life, was pretty much seared into the consciousness of people. And here's my, here's my, here's my um, effort to try to help you understand why this is important. I think when people grow up from an early age being taught that, that you, are, you can do anything you want to do, be anything you want to be, live any way you want to live, and there is no consequences after death. Then if I am angry enough at my world and depressed enough and emotionally upset enough 
and perhaps mentally ill or not, whatever you want to define that as, the reality is if I am angry enough and I decide to check out, why not just do what I want to do and just get even and take out as many people as I can take out with me? It doesn't matter if they're innocent bystanders or what. Why not go into a school full of children and just kill as many as I can kill and then kill myself? Why not go up to a tower in Texas and just see how many innocent people I can take out? That was the first one I remember in the 1970s, maybe. See, I I think that what we see happening in our world that we see as evil, such as a mass killing, sometimes may very well be rooted in another evil, a, a, a more foundational evil of raising a generation to believe that there is no God, or if there is a God, he is irrelevant, and, and, and he will not be your judge, and no one is your judge because there is no right or wrong. And when you are raised in that culture, great acts of evil flow out of that. That's, I've gone from teaching the word to kind of speculating. So you, you can chew on it this week and agree or disagree, but that's okay. But here's where I want to make the connection. That very night... After I watched that report, I turn on late-night TV and watch one of our late-night comedians interviewing a really nice guy with a bow tie, Bill Nye the Science Guy, and openly ridiculing the idea that there is a creator, there is a God, and that that should be part of our worldview. Now, I don't want to get into you know, what was behind that, but the reality is... I like science. I think science and Christianity go really well together, actually. But, but, but the point is, our a whole generation is listening and laughing and scoffing uh, you know, uh, at, at the idea that we don't really need a creator anymore. We've got it all figured out. There is no need for God. Now, here's my question. And one day I heard two reports of a mass shooter and a guy just trying to help everyone understand there is no need for a creator. Which is more evil? That may get me in trouble. But I like to make you think. I don't worry about which is more evil, but I think by Jesus' definition of evil, they're both evil. They're both evil. And they have deadly consequences. So realize that let's get tough as Christians and realize that we're living in a world that will not always agree with us, especially when what we believe begins to push against the culture on issues of morality, beliefs, worldview. Number three, unbelief is often an issue of the heart, not the head. Verse 17, Jesus nails it. He says, you know, if anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know of the teaching, that is my teaching, whether it is of God or not. In other words, the people that are rejecting me, Jesus says, are doing it because of their heart, not their intellect. And I think that's true in our culture today as well. That more commonly, There are intellectual challenges to Christianity, but more commonly, those I find that are passionately against our Christian faith are often people that are either angry with God because of what He did not do, that they ask Him to do, or they have a moral dilemma, a moral struggle going on in the area of their sexuality or some other area of their life that they know that if I buy into Jesus, I have to change. So it's easier for me to intellectually disown Jesus than to face the moral issues in my life. It's often more a 
heart issue than a head issue. Number four, Jesus offers life to all who believe. We've taught this before, so I, but I didn't want you to overlook it. I love the fact that in the midst of being attacked by these people, trying to take him out, Jesus stops and says, hey, by the way, one more reminder. Believe in me and I want to give you eternal life. Wow. That's the love of God. That's the grace of God. And then something we'll teach on another week, and then he says, and by the way, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit too. That's point five. He promises his spirit as the indwelling, never-ending, inexhaustible source of our life. Wow, what a promise. So I love Jesus, man. You've got to love Jesus. He ticks off people. He did it then. He does it today. So be ready for that. But yet, always come back to our message is not so much about arguing with our world. Our message is about coming back to what Jesus did when he said, but by the way, the main message is this, I'm here to offer life. I'm here to offer forgiveness and freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm here to offer you life and the Spirit of God to help you pull it off. Wow. It's the message of grace. It's the message of the love of God, even given to a world when it hates you. So the question's that come out of the message are this. Do you really want to hear from heaven? Because if you tuned in to God talk on Friday nights from 9 to 10 every week, you're going to hear the same message that Jesus was delivering. So my guess is the ratings would be really high at first, and then there would be a lot of controversy. And some people would say, I can't stand that show. I would hope that you would embrace it. And that raises the question, will you believe that Jesus, the heavenly one, is the one that you're going to trust? You're not going to trust your culture. You're not going to trust your own intuitive self. You're going to say, I'm going to trust the words and the wisdom of Jesus over even my own thinking because I'm not God. And he is. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the words the wisdom of Jesus. Thank you that um, cultures may get older, but they don't change. Technology changes, but yet the heart of man doesn't change. And we uh, teach us as followers of Jesus to trust him because he was indeed from heaven. He didn't just speak about heaven, he was from heaven. Thank you that he sits there at the right hand of the Heavenly Father right now as our Savior, as our God. So right now in your heart, would you say, Lord Jesus, I choose you. I trust in you today. I choose to put my trust in you instead of my world, my culture, or even myself. Because you are the one from heaven. In Christ's name, amen.